0: What's the point of making all this effort to build your professional network? Is it something that you should do only when you're looking for a job? Why bother making new connections if there's no direct and clear benefit? I think it's obvious by now that I don't think this way, but it's this kind of mindset that is keeping people from making the effort to build great relationships. There's one thing I know for certain. If you don't consistently make an effort to nurture the relationships you have and strategically make new connections you will find yourself at a loss when you need something. The opposite is also true. If you are the type of person who regularly makes introductions, helps other people reach their goals, and is always looking for ways to add value, you will receive the assistance you need when you need it. After my successful book launch, I was ready to expand my coaching business, which had been fairly quiet while I was focused on the launch. I knew to be successful, I needed to start getting really clear and serious on This question of ideal client, but I felt pretty stymied by this questions since I've worked with and spoken in front of quite a wide range of job titles and industries. So I reached out to my network and shared that I was looking to chat with people about this topic and would appreciate their feedback. Immediately, two people replied to my Facebook post in a private group, and I thought, great, the thread will probably go quiet now, but at least two people agreed to help. Then two more said yes, and then three more. And in the end, I spoke to 12 people over a two-week period and received the guidance I was looking for. This was possible because I've been giving to this particular private Facebook group for the last year, and this was an opportunity for them to give back to me. And no, I didn't reach out to my fellow members over the last year because I needed something. It was more of an investment. You see, you can't draw money out of an account that you haven't deposited money into, and relationships are the same way. You need to give before you request something in return. Become known as someone who gives and people who haven't directly helped will step forward to support you. I've seen it happen time and time again. Are you curious who I decided my ideal client was? I've realized that I really love to work with business coaches, especially those who also speak as part of their business. See, I can help them leverage their existing network. We're probably in touch with about 80% of the people we need to know, but we're only in touch with like a third of those people in any meaningful way. I also help them figure out where to strategically put energy into building their network so they can create a stronger client base. I offer a variety of coaching packages, including one-on-one and group or what I call mastermind sessions. If you're a relatively new coach or one who's been in business a while, but you're feeling kind of stuck, please reach out for a complimentary chat. I would love to learn about your business and how we might work together to meet your goals. Email Robbie at Robbiesamuels.com. On the Schmooze is proud to be a headliner on C Suite Radio, which is part of the C Suite Network, a network of a half million C level executives. Now, onto this week's show. Today's guest is a leader in the fields of executive communications, leadership development, and talent management. She began her career in retail and import industries, which included working extensively in Asia, Latin America, and Africa to negotiate with manufacturers and inspect factories for UN health and safety violations. She also led customer service for over 20 domestic and international member stores and ran a multi million dollar warehousing service. Her international experience provided the foundation for her subsequent leadership development work, helping senior executives communicate more effectively across cultural, generational, Functional and regional boundaries. She shows her coaching clients how to communicate with greater impact and increase their leadership presence. She's overseen organizational effectiveness for a Fortune 500 company and consulted with numerous corporations in the pharmaceutical, advertising, publishing, and financial services industries. Combining pragmatism with customized solutions, she brings authenticity, determination, humor, and insight to everything she does. A frequent blogger, she's been quoted extensively in Fast Company. Forbes, Fortune, and numerous other publications. Please join me in welcoming Nancy Halpern.
1: Robbie, thank you so much for having me on today. This is really a pleasure.
0: Nancy, thank you for joining us from your office in New York City. I'm really excited to get into a conversation with you, and I want to get started by asking you, what does leadership mean to you, and when did you realize you had the skills to lead?
1: Well, I'm a very metaphorical thinker. Um, I've realized over the years how visual I am. So I think of leadership as like being a duck, you know, ducks sort of glide effortlessly across the pond and yet underneath the water where no one can see, they are pedaling furiously to not even move very quickly. So there's this actually wonderful unseen contrast that's happening in this duck who sort of cut in half. And I think that people rely on leaders to have that sort of calmness, but also to be these engines that drive everything forward. So that's how I sort of think about it.
0: I love this visualization. It's true that like, you, a leader needs to get something done, but they can't have this frenetic uh fray around them because then people don't trust in them right if, if they If they exude anxiety, then people are like, "Oh, do you not have it all together but truthfully they're they're juggling or spinning lots of plates <laughs> they've got a lot going on, I guess like you're saying beneath the surface
1: well, I think it's a very careful duck dance because if you're too serene, you look. As if you lack empathy, that you don't care. But if you are too, as you say, frenetic and frantic, then the people under you think that it's not under control and that they have a reason to be afraid. And no one works well when they're scared. They might take some actually positive actions. Fear can be a great motivator. It's certainly one of my favorite motivators for myself. But in a leader, it's not a good thing.
0: Mm, I love this visualization. So, at what point did you first start to think of yourself as a leader and did someone early on sort of recognize that opportunities for you or did you seek them out?
1: Well, I think it was sort of too uh, I'm not sure anything is ever totally random, but the first seemed like a very random comment when I was in business school. And those were the days when people were using Lotus for spreadsheets and you Brought up your computer, there were no laptops, and the whole screen was black, you know, with a little green cursor that would pulsate. And you had to figure out what to put into DOS. It was a really frightening time. And I found business school really hard. I mean, it was deeply, deeply numerative and really rewarded people who were quant jocks. And I wasn't really a quant jock. And some second-year student came up to me. He must have seen me in a class. I don't remember his name, but I remember his face. And he said, well, you're unusual because you're both analytical and creative. And I never thought of myself as analytical before because I thought analytical meant being financial. But of course, it's not. It's much broader. So that was the first indication that I had a sort of unusual combination. I wasn't one or the other. And I think the second time was a couple of years out of business school, not that long out, maybe a year, 18 months. I had a boss who had the wisdom to leave me alone because he knew that if he didn't leave me alone... I would be resentful and I really wouldn't work very hard because why work hard for someone who micromanages you? It's sort of, it rewards the lazy. Micromanagers reward the lazy because it means you should make an extra effort. You shouldn't try to improve it. Your boss is gonna change it anyway. And he's he or she wants to do it for you, so why bother? But my boss was smart enough to leave me alone. And I, I created double-digit growth in that area um, and I think this is sort of related, Robbie, but it happened at the same job. And it was using the sort of analytical and creative, intuitive skills. I had two people on my sales floor who were could not have been more different. One was probably in her 60s. She was um, Irish. She was a saleswoman. She was very cranky. And the other was this stock guy who was like 25, Matthew. Matthew and Millie. And Matthew came from Bar- Barbados. And during his breaks, he would go out to the parking lot and get stoned. And, you know, Millie was mad at Matthew because he was never around when she needed stock. And Matthew was mad at Millie because she thought she was just a cranky old white lady. And I had to get them together in a room and say, well, your paychecks come from your ability to work together. And how are you going to do that? And so the ability not to manage. Your managers manage those people's time. I think managers step into becoming leaders when they get people to change for a desired and shared result.
0: Mm, I see. So you had to help them see that they had, they themselves were going to benefit from this shift, this change of working well together, and that they weren't doing it just to please you.
1: And they weren't doing it just to spite the other. They were doing it self-destructively. Mm-hmm. I mean... You know, Matthew wants to get stoned on his own time. That's his business. I could care less. I could care less. But Matthew not being around to get that sheet from the top floor, so Millie could make a sale and get a commission, so Matthew could get his paycheck next week. That's self-destructive behavior. Mm-hmm. And Millie wasn't going to win any friends by treating him like dirt. Mm-hmm. And again, it was going to hurt her. Why would he go get her that sheet? So you know, that was—I mean—I never really thought about it, frankly, till speaking with you right now. But I think that was really the first application of the leadership work I do now. And that was over 30, that was 30 years ago.
0: So I want to actually go even further back in time because you started this you started this in uh, business school and you know business school you're you know you're you're past your twenties and, and early on were you the person that organized the kids in the playground or, you know, had a lemonade stand or ran for student office, or were you sort of, I don't know, holding yourself back and observing the room and not necessarily being out out in front. Like what was, what was your take on that? And did anyone encourage you to do something in a leadership way?
1: No, I was the shy fat kid who stuttered. Absolutely not. Um, But in, well, actually though, um, I did run a ballet company. I was the executive director when I was way too young to know what I was doing at 26. So at 26, I was hired to run at the time. And this was in the mid eighties, half million dollar budget I had, and a school and a dance company probably had about, I don't know, maybe like five administrative staff under me. And there were probably 10 dancers. And I was responsible for every aspect of that operation from uh, being a liaison with the board of directors to dealing with uh, the carpenter and the theaters and the school and the parents and the payroll and the marketing campaigns. and the, mm-hmm. So I had to do the whole Megillah. So I guess I was thrust into or wanted. I was always, you know, I was always hungry. I felt ambitious to learn. And I felt ambitious to see what else am I capable of doing? Mm. And, you know, the real reason I went to business school was twofold. Uh, Sorry to keep going back there, but it was such a pivotal turn for me. The first was I was interviewing, this ballet company I ran was in Connecticut. And I was interviewing for a job in New York City that I knew I could get. I was very confident about it. But I thought if I get that job, I already know what I'll be doing when I'm 40. Which, of course, when you're 26, seems like 110. And I didn't want to know what I would be doing when I was 40. And the other reason was because I thought I was a scam. I thought for this company to give me the responsibility of paying everyone every two weeks, I I would not sleep every other Wednesday night because I had to scrape together the pennies to pay people. And I thought, I don't even know why a balance sheet has to balance. I am a fraud. I need to learn more. Mm. So it was that realization that you might have the position mm-hmm. and I didn't know how to lead people. You know, I tried to lead them by coming on like a steamroller mm. uh, because I wanted to prove my authority, but right. that, that right. really doesn't work.
0: It's amazing how you're able to take all the lessons that you've learned on your journey and now apply it to helping people that you work with today, because you can see in them the same, you know, uh, bravado perhaps <laughs> that you had about just like wanting to look, look confident. Um, and yet they also need skills and training and support systems. And sometimes the reason they're not leading well is because they, they haven't had that uh, opportunity to, to have that experience. What's been most rewarding about the work you're able to do today with these clients?
1: Wow. There's a lot of things that are rewarding. But when you were speaking, I was thinking of one client in particular I had last year, and he's about 27, uh, never went to college, is a full vice president of strategic technology at a pretty large corporation. And you know, people just found him dismissive. And he really wasn't. You know, he was a serial entrepreneur. He wanted to try out his chops inside a corporation versus a startup. Um, And it was being able to get him to realize that his youth was an advantage that he wasn't using. And what I mean by that is that it's not a time when you have to compensate for youth by pretending that you're older. It's a time to find gurus. And ask for advice because it's not con- not going to result in them taking the title away from him. It's going to result in them thinking, "Wow, look how open he is to learn as well as to execute." That's an unusual combination, and you can only get away with being young when you're young. <laughs> you know, I, I think it's ridiculous that people try to, you know, dress thirty years younger or. <laughs> have massive facial surgery and, you know, everyone gets old and there's great things about getting old, like you're wiser and you don't do the same stupid things, not too many of them, over and over again. And, you know, you I mean, there's a reason certain cultures venerate the elderly.
0: Yeah. I love what you're saying, though, about this 27-year-old, though, and it's such a great reframe uh, for him instead of thinking about his youth being, I don't know, Maybe he's feeling like oh I'm being perceived as too young and I know so much I'm a serial entrepreneur you know I've learned a lot in my short time on this earth but he also has a lot more to learn as we all do and he has the advantage is what you're saying of being able to seek out mentors and gurus and and people to be in his personal board directors which we all should be doing but there is a way in which maybe it's a little easier if you're still you know the beginning stages of a career to to um Position yourself as the kind of person who's open to that. Um, that's interesting. I never thought about it. It, it, it could be. It's, it actually does give you extra credit for being the person who's open to learning and able to execute. That you're not just in the learning mode, and you're not just like I know everything. So
1: yeah, because I've seen yeah. um, just the opposite. I mean, when I was looking to hire some staff within the last couple of years, I interviewed. Um, A few people who I would say were under 30. And I actually found a rigidity that surprised me. Um, And so, you know, every generation likes to say that every generation is different and they're known for certain things. And we as a culture like to classify and categorize and sort people and times because it makes it easier to understand. So there's some truth to all of that. But I was a little surprised by, as I said, the sort of rigidity and approach that I found a lot of millennials having, which is, well, you know, this is social media, so I know it. And this is the way I do it. And if you need something different or extra, or you need me to be flexible, I don't have to do that. And that kind of blew me away because I'm very client centric. Mm-hmm. I'm very client centric. Yeah, and who so, taught you
0: to be client centric though?
1: Well, that's a great question. Who taught me to be client centric? It might be because at some point in my career, it's the one you were citing when I was traveling a lot overseas to do factory work, I was head of customer service. And at some point in my life, I must have realized. That client or customer, because I, I realize this is the third time I've said this to you in 15 minutes, they pay my rent. Mm. And I like money. I mean, I do. I'm not totally avaricious or materialistic, but, you know, I prefer to eat lamb chops to canned beans. And I, it matters. Money matters. And so I should be nice to people who will give me money. So it just seems so logical to me. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if Anyone taught it to me, the jobs or that job certainly forced. I know how I learned it, Robbie. Oh my goodness. You asked such good questions. It's like, I have to flip through my like, you know, mental computer databases. The first job I had out of college, the very first job for $5,000 a year was being a grant writer at the Boston Ballet. Mm. And so my first job at a college was about asking for money. Mm-hmm. So I think that's how.
0: Sure. You realize right away that, um, right, like understanding what another person needs from you, being able to frame that in a way that highlights the value of what you're offering makes everyone happy. Yeah. Why struggle?
1: Why struggle? And also, I like, I mean, bad customer service drives me insane. (laughs) You know, I like being, if somebody wants something from me, typically my money, then I think they should be nice to me. So I guess I should be nice to them. I'm not sure that the same thing you were asking about, about you know client first, but that's what I came up with.
0: So uh, as you grew in your career and you had the opportunity to, to I mean, if you're working in all these different companies, mm. um, you had these very high level, senior level positions in charge of you know lots of people, lots of budgets, you were no longer uh, a sort of naive uh, mm. person in your 20s running a company, but here you are, an experienced professional, At what point did you shift and decide you were going to, like, focus on this on your own, like, you know, like create your own consulting firm?
1: Well, like many things, it was serendipity. I was working in a large corporation. I didn't really like it. Uh, It was really too many meetings, too much process. I missed consulting. Consulting work is exciting and fun because you get to bounce from client to client and meet a lot of different types of people, solve different types of problems. So when the company and I decided mutually to part, I wanted to go back to consulting, but I couldn't join a firm because I was a single mother with a young child. There's lots of business in New York City and I still had my client relationships from when I was with the other firm. So I decided you know, I'm 50 years old. It's like now or never. It's like wearing red lipstick. I'm either going to do it now or I'm never going to do it. So I sort of, you know, held my breath, crossed my fingers and took a deep dive. And that was about, uh, it'll be 10 years ago.
0: Wow. Congratulations. I mean, you've also weathered a lot of economic up and down in that time period. So that was 10 years ago is like right before the, you know, economy started to Tilt sideways. So must've been a difficult moment. A lot of people actually became entrepreneurs in that time period um, when they found themselves without a, a regular steady paycheck and had to reinvent themselves. So it sounds like you did that. And 10 years in, you've uh, created a really wonderful, rewarding work for yourself. What was most challenging about that transition for you?
1: Loneliness. I mean, I don't think it's even the ups and downs of income, although that's every entrepreneur's problem, especially a solopreneur like me. But I like learning through verbal exchange and idea challenge and swap. That's enriching. You know, um, it makes your own thoughts larger and grow in scope. And when you work for yourself, if you're with clients, you're always sort of on, Right, you have client face, and that's different than colleague face. And I really miss having colleague face, and I still do, frankly. It's very hard to reproduce that. And now the consulting industry in my field has changed enough so that even if I wanted to do that, it's kind of hard. Uh, you can't pull it off as easily as you could 10 years ago or 15 years ago.
0: Yeah, and you and I actually got to know each other through Dory Clark's uh, program. And I, I found that it's really wonderful to be in a Facebook group like that because you're, you're surrounded by these driven people who are all you know, figuring out their own career paths. And it, it's a space where you get to sort of ask questions and set up a lot of phone calls and meet people either virtually or in person. So I think it's, it's nice to have some of those opportunities, but it doesn't replace you know, literally being in a room with other people all the time where you get to just bounce ideas off each other.
1: Yeah. And it's like friendships, you know, but a different type. So I think I miss that. Um, Yeah, I think that's been the hardest part. I mean, I guess the second hardest part, and this depends on your own personality. I really didn't have to market myself for a long time. It was a rich enough referral business and a rich enough, just sort of stylistic business that intellectual capital was enough. But again, you know, things change. And now there's so much branding that is associated with just yourself personally. Mm -hmm. And as someone who's in service to others, I found that a really tough transition. But Mm. that's been true, I'd say, over the last mm, three years, three to five max. Certainly not the initial part of my career or my own solo practice.
0: So earlier you were saying how one of the reasons you wanted to make this big shift was because you were a single parent with a young child who presumably is now an older child, um, but not
1: 22.
0: Wow. So, um, what is like, uh, I think it feels a little bit like a misnomer to say work life balance when you work for yourself and you have a a child at home, um, I'm in that boat. I'm at the beginning of this <laughs> adventure. You're at the other end. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I have a toddler and one on the way and you're like, oh, my kid's going off to the to workforce. So it's very different. Um, but what did, what does self-care look like for you? Do you have any rituals or, or habits?
1: You mean self-care and taking care of myself? Yeah. Now or during the time when I was raising my son and working for myself?
0: Well, both. Yeah. How did you, how did you manage it then? And how does it look differently now?
1: Oh, it's so different. Well, I guess when Malcolm was growing up, um, I was very worried about teenage years because little children you can hire help if you can afford it, and their needs are very different. But teenagers reject you necessarily, and they become this sort of puddle of primordial slime that you know you still love, but you work to like. And I decided it was very important that I be visible during that time, so working for myself meant I could drive him to school every day. He could, I could have made a walk. He could have taken a bus, but yeah, I like setting him off. And also if I could schedule my meetings accordingly, many days I would pick him up from school. And I was working in my dining room. I never had a home office. I had a dining room table. I still do. And he would be, you know, killing Nazi zombies in his room, but I was there. And so... I don't know if I'd call that self-care, but I called it watchful eye. And I think it made a difference. Um, He couldn't get away with as much. And I had that luxury to make sure. And I think it was sort of money in the bank. We're very, very close. And I think that helped put money in the bank. Um, Other self-care working, and it's different now simply because he has his own home and he's in a different city. Um, Self-care, it is important that i have one or two evenings alone to myself i'm not a huge extrovert by nature i'm a slight extrovert so if i'm pumping it out for clients all the time and i'm pumping out more and more efforts at self-marketing and self-promotion that's exhausting for me as a as a personality and i find i really need my time curled up on the couch with the dog watching tv in the evenings because other evenings, I am going out to social events or networking events, or even seeing friends becomes very important. Or the dog and I were out in Central Park this morning for an hour at 8 a.m. And so that clearing of the head, or at least, you know, I'm not sure in fairness, it really clears my head. I know it's supposed to clear my head, but I do like it. And I get ideas. And it's different than the routine. Mm-hmm. You know, I think when, yeah. you, when you work at home, you get into routines just as much. And so it's important to break your routine and get out of the house. And that can be a challenge for me because I like my house.
0: So you, you mentioned a moment ago that uh, one of the things you're doing is you're always going out and talking to people, going to different events and conferences and, and, and networking spaces. Um, is it something you have a real clear, uh, I guess, strategy around? Do you know what it is you're you want out of these these opportunities and how to match going to the event to like how it helps your business? Or are you kind of, you know, hoping that connections get made?
1: Well, after reading Croissant versus Bagels, I think I have a much, much clearer idea. Thank you very much. Um, I've actually decided to run an experiment, which I will update you and our friends on after it runs a few times. i decided to have small cocktail parties in my home. I mean, for God's sake, I live in Manhattan. I meet a lot of women and women. It's not that I don't meet a lot of men too, but women feel different at an all women's event. And so I am hosting my first one on September 28th. No more than 10 to 12 women in my home. And you know, I'll buy a couple of bottles of white wine and put out a little hummus. And the first one is sort of a warm entry, meaning I sort of I know half of the women very well and half I've only met once before. And see how they mix. Because I've been doing this for dinners, and it works well, but if I host a dinner, I'm so such an obsessive that i'll make a four course meal from scratch because it has to be great food well that's a lot of work and you know that's only three new people connecting i want to expand my horizon so i think i want to take i am a little selective and then i'll take people out for drinks i need to reduce the crowd size for me to feel both comfortable and connective and i've also found that one of the ways I network now is I connect other people to each other. I become I become the hostess because I'm a much better hostess than I am an attendee. I don't know. I could criticize myself and say it's the power position, or I could be nice to myself and say it's because I like to give. Maybe it's both. I don't know. But I know I'm more comfortable. I shine more easily. I'm more relaxed yeah. when I'm hosting. And it's my home. So how bad could it have been?
0: It makes a lot of sense. and I love that you've came to this decision to just challenge yourself to do these different kinds of events in your home that are less taxing on you, uh, but will also bring quality people together who are going to be excited for the opportunity. And I think, you know, D- Dory Clark does dinners. I, you know, I've, I've done similar things. Sounds like a dinner in your home is a little too much, but this is a, a different kind of feel. And it still has the added benefit right it it brings people together and the idea of a host role is really interesting because i do feel like most people when they have the host mindset they do show up more they're more present and more mindful and it's easier for other people to connect with them and vice versa so it's great that you're kind of thinking your way through this and i'm looking forward to hearing how this all goes Uh, i wanted to just uh ask you another question though about about relationships it seems like you've been really thoughtful lately about how you're building on them. And thanks for the shout out about my book. Um, I'm glad you read it.
1: (laughs) I did. I love it.
0: So you've met so many different kinds of people throughout your career. How do you stay in touch with people? How do you nurture those relationships? How do you, you know, sustain your professional network?
1: Well, I don't do a good enough job at it. I know that. I get increasingly yet incrementally better at it. So there's definitely a sort of A-list that runs in my mind of people whom I enjoy. And so when you enjoy them, it's easy to remember. Or our key clients, and since I'm a shop of one, you can't have that many clients You know, it's not like I service individuals, I service companies. So, there's at no time in my career can I have more than five to six corporate clients. They'll give you multiple engagements. So, the gatekeeper at those companies are few. So, by design, it's not a huge list. However, there are the people I might have worked with five years ago who have dropped out of circulation for me. So, currently, I am. In fact, this week, merging my LinkedIn followers and my Gmail contacts from the last 10 years into one large database that I think is like 5,000 people or something like that. And then I will, well, you know, I've been doing this a long time. I will then transfer over to contactually.
0: Yay. Love contactually.
1: Yes. I hear great things about it to help me better manage it because I think I'm beyond the spread. Now, half of those people will be LinkedIn followers who I will not have to manage. Right. I mean, but. More than that. Yeah. Yeah, more than that. Well, I think right now it's 2,700, but there'll be some overlap between LinkedIn and my own Gmail contacts. So let's say for argument's sake, it's, I don't know, 900. I mean, something like that. It's gotten, and I doubt it's even that many, but I don't really know yet. It's too much for an Excel spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. And I've gotten to the point where I need a reminder about how to do it. Yeah. But I also joined a local club here mm-hmm. in the city and it's very pricey. I will say that it's not an option for everyone, but it's a very sexy option and people are always impressed when I invite them. It's that hostess Smart, thing. Smart, yeah. yeah. You know, now mind you, I do think about how does this get monetized? Mm-hmm. And I realize it's sort of like hope. You know, you don't know Mm -hmm. because you don't know when someone a year later is going to say, oh yeah, I heard about you from X person.
0: Right. But if you're not putting yourself out there, that won't happen. Like, you know, that if you do nothing, then the leads don't come. And I I just want to put out a civic plug about contactually. I'm an affiliate. And if people want to check this out for themselves and get a, a two week trial, they can go to Robbie com slash contactually. You essentially, you identify different buckets for your network to be in and you set a timer for each bucket for how much time you want to have pass at the most, the maximum amount of time before you talk to them again. And I will tell you, Nancy, I like using this not so much for my strong connections. Mm. Like you're going to not forget to reach out to your clients, right? That's because right. that's, you're involved. You're actively engaged with them. I like it for past clients. I like it for prospective clients that I am still, you know, nurturing that relationship. I like it for, I think I just call it colleague. It's the people that I've met a couple of times and I've had a good vibe with and we've enjoyed each other. They're the kind of people I would invite to a dinner. I would invite to a cocktail party. Um, you know, I would I would invest energy into seeing what they're doing on social media. And then I have the people that right after I come back for a major event, like a conference or something. I'll reach out to you know a small select group of that you know let's say I get 25 cards, I, there'll be like five that I'll have like a particularly in depth follow up. Those five I'll want to track for a few months and see whether that turns into something more, whether they reach back out, and whether we can you know get on a video chat, end up doing something some work together, or et cetera. And they and then I'll I've learned that I have to sort of consistently remove people from these lists that uh, if it's too many. Like I think fifty is sort of my max of the mm-hmm. people that I can keep track of across all these various buckets. And at any point, I have five or six buckets. I think even you, if you have ten, it's it's too it's too many things to keep track of and too yeah. different. But you sort of collapse people in, and but it's been great to not let these people sort of fade away. Uh, and then I don't see them against the following conference. That seems like too long amount of time. And you want to. Sort of pop up in between. It might be quarterly, you know, when you don't really have a, a real connection yet, and that's that's enough to kind of nurture it. And then later on, they might get moved to a bucket where I want to make sure I'm talking to them every month and things like that. So um, I'm always happy to chat with people about contextually because I it's helped solve a problem that I had. I, and I use various other methods of like you know ways ways I tagged in Gmail and there's lots of other methods. I was just talking to someone on another. Interview about how you use index cards, old school <laughs> style, but um, but I do think it actually offers a lot of different options, and I'm glad you're thinking about how to bring all these people you've met into one space, so you can be can can be nurturing them.
1: I think you make a great point too that it's about the cream. You know, I have no idea. I said 900. I doubt it's 900. Maybe it's 50, but it's absolutely the prospects the former clients, all those people. And I think a lot of people, including your listeners, I know I do probably struggle with, well, what do I talk to them about? Mm You know, If I don't see them all the time. And I think at least for me, one of the solutions for that has been to do a newsletter, which I do periodically. The aim is to do it monthly. I'm waiting for my new website to launch because that'll be my big news, but I've done it through MailChimp anyway to my list. And usually I'll take... I'll try to cross-fertilize on the same topic. So I'll take a news item, a blog post, and if I'm lucky, a recent interview with a magazine. Mm-hmm. Or, and then it's really not to them personally. It's a blanket, but I'll try to come up with a catchy headline. Because mm-hmm. as you know, subject lines and titles are the word equivalent of a great
0: visual. Absolutely. They're,
1: they're the hook you know? And so it's worth trying to find something like that because you're not going to have something individually customized to say Mm -hmm. to every person. That's just impossible.
0: Well, there's something actually cool about Contactually and then I'll I'll move to my last question for you. Um, So let's say uh, there are 12 people that are in my dashboard for Contactually and they're all people that I, like you said, I don't have a specific thing that um, to reach out to them about, but I have an update, you know, let's say my update might be about my book, uh, for instance. And so I'll write something up, but then I can actually change for each one of them, the introduction sentence, Mm. um, and personalize it. So I could then go through and I am thinking about them in particular. It's not a, it's not a mailing list. And I get to think, okay, where was I last when I spoke to them? What did we talk about? Where am I going to see them next? And I get to reference that, which makes it an actual conversation and not just a newsletter blast. And the response to those has been much higher uh, in that regard. And they're also not feeling like they were just added to a random newsletter that they hadn't signed up for. So um, it's it's really neat. Like I I actually just I keep trying to learn more about this uh, program. So that was great, and I, I love how you're thinking about all this. So I am curious if we had an opportunity to meet a year from now. And I hope that we meet a few times before then. But if we get a chance to sit down a year from now and we're talking about what a great year it's been, what accomplishments will we be celebrating that you've accomplished?
1: I will have figured out what the book is about and have finished it. I have wanted for a very, very long time to write a book. Um, I'm a good writer. I'm a big reader. And my father, who's still alive and works at 90, Um, he has always wanted me to write a book and I have written, frankly, two thirds of a book, but I got a little flummoxed by the whole, it must be about one thing it must have. And I have a lot of ideas and what I really want to do is see you a year from now and say, I was able to take a knowledge transfer of 20 years of expertise. And put it in a package that people can understand and want to unwrap. So that's my goal.
0: That's awesome. Well, I, I, I hope that I have a second book by the time you and I have a chance to have that conversation. And I, I have tell you, writing a book for me um, was a process. And I am happy to talk to you offline a little bit about how I went through it. And I'm actually, um, I've just interviewed uh, the, the head of the guy who founded Self-Publishing School. And he was a great help to me is his work, thinking about how to structure a book and how to focus, because like you said, there's always a lot to, to write about. I, I'm looking forward to hearing about that update. I'm really excited about all the work that you're doing. And I'm wondering, well, how can my listeners you know, find you and follow your work? What's the best ways to connect with you?
1: Well, I think on LinkedIn for today and for the next two months, because my, my old website is really it's under construction and there'll be a very very new exciting one with all my interviews and other podcast interviews and my blog posts but connect with me on linkedin i'm happy to connect with people happy to hear what they're up to and share my ideas with them as well
0: great we'll put both links in there and people can check out the before and after um thank you so much for joining us it's been a pleasure
1: well thank you for inviting me it was really a gas and really fun and i consider it a great honor so thank you robbie
0: I hope you enjoyed that interview with Nancy Halpern. Such a pleasure to speak with her and learn about her leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 68. That's also where you'll find all the links from today's episode. If you're listening to this podcast, then you already understand how critical relationship building is to your success. You go to events and conferences to meet new people and you make an effort to stay in touch. Yet, you know that you could up your networking game and turn that stack of business cards you've been collecting into cash, clients, and credibility. You're ready to create a strategic networking plan so you know where to put your limited time and energy and create a system for following up and staying connected. Let me help you transform relationships into business opportunities. You can start by reading my best-selling business book, Croissants versus Bagels, strategic, effective, and inclusive networking at conferences. Purchase it at robbysamuels.com forward slash bookstore, and you'll be able to receive all of the book's bonuses, including the free audiobook. Would you rather one-on-one executive coaching? Email me at robbie at robbysamuels.com, and we can schedule a time to chat about your personal strategic networking plan and a system for tracking your most important connections, and of course, those warm, weak ties that you need to keep cultivating. You can also email me to get on the wait list for my next Mastermind Group Coaching Program. If you enjoyed this episode with Nancy Halpern, please share it with your friends and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan of On The Schmooze? (laughs) That's awesome. I would love to read your review in iTunes. It's easy to find our iTunes page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance. And I look forward to connecting again next week when I'll be interviewing another talented professional about their untold stories of leadership and networking. We'll explore their career challenges, work-life balance, and how they built a strong professional network on their way to becoming successful leaders. Until then, have an amazing week.